0: Chapter Thirty of the Tickencoat Treasure by William Lecue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty, The Silent Man's Story. On the following morning, I entered Doctor McFarlane's consulting room in response to a letter from him. "Your foundling is a lot better," Pickering exclaimed. The great lunacy a specialist, rising and giving me his hand, "I've got him round at last." Not only is he quite rational, but he has found his voice, or as much of it as he will ever have. Brand, the surgeon, has discovered that he has an injury to the tongue which prevents him properly articulating. "'Is he quite right in his mind?' I asked, eagerly. "'As right as you are, my dear fellow. I thought from the first that it was only temporary,' he answered. "'He has told me a story, and by Jove it's a remarkable one. "'What account does he give of himself?' oh you better come with me down to ealing and hear it from his own lips i'm going to high elms in half an hour when the mysterious man entered the doctor's private room at the asylum i saw at once what a change had been wrought in him neatly dressed in blue serge his gray hair was well trimmed and he no longer wore that long rip Van winkle beard of which the hands of the thrush had made such fun he was now shaven with a well twisted white moustache smart, fresh-looking, and no longer decrepit. He walked with a springy step and seemed at least twenty years younger. Only when he spoke one realized his infirmity, although he seemed an educated man. His mouth emitted a strange hollow sound and several letters he could not pronounce intelligibly. I have, I believe, to thank you, doctor, he said politely as he came in. You were one of those who rescued me yes i answered i found you on board the old ship the seahorse and we took you with us to the steamer ah he sighed i had a narrow escape doctor a very narrow escape i've been mad they say it's true i suppose otherwise i should not be here in an asylum but i assure you i recollect very little after i boarded that coffin ship i watched his dark eyes they were no longer shifty but calm and steady He was quite sane now, and had, at Macfarlane's invitation, seated himself between us. "'We are all very much interested in you,' I said. "'Will you tell me the whole story?' "'Well, I can't talk very plainly, you know, but I'll try and explain everything,' he said. Then, with a renewed effort, he went on. "'It is no sailor's yarn, but the truth, even though it may sound a remarkable story. You see, it was like this.' i'd been at sea all my life and in liverpool bob usher first mate of the city of chester was well known twelve years ago like a good many other men i got sick of my work and in a fit of anger with the skipper i deserted in sydney after the city of chester had sailed for home i joined another steamer the goldfinch bound for shanghai but instead of putting in there we ran up the chinese coast and when a couple of cannon were produced and the forecastle hands armed themselves with rifles and cutlasses the truth dawned upon me it was not long before we painted our name on the bows and commenced doing a bit of piracy among the junks our quick-firing guns manned by old naval men played havoc among the chinese boats and before a fortnight we had quite a cargo of loot silks ivories tea opium and such things all of which we ran to Adelaide, where the skipper disposed of them to one of those agents who asked no questions. At first I had thought of leaving the ship, for I had no desire to be overhauled by a British cruiser, nor to be sunk as a pirate. Still, the life was full of excitement, and the hands were as adventurous and as light-hearted a crew as ever sailed the Pacific. Although the gunboats were constantly on the lookout for us— we had wonderful good luck. In the China Seas, there is still a lot of piracy, mostly by the Chinese themselves, but sometimes by European steamers. We always gave the British squadron a very wide berth, constantly changing our name and altering the color of our funnel. This went on for nearly a year, when at last the chase after us grew a bit too hot, and we sailed out of Perth for Liverpool. We had rounded the Cape, and were steaming up the west coast of africa when one day a danish seaman named jansen made a trifling mistake in executing one of the captain's orders the skipper swore the dane answered him back whereupon the captain shot the poor fellow like a dog and with the aid of the second mate pitched him to the sharps before he was dead this was a bit too much for me i remonstrated at such cold-blooded murder but scarcely had the words left my mouth when the captain, Bennett by name, fired point-blank at me. "'Bennett!' I ejaculated, interrupting. "'Do you mean Black Bennett?' "'Yes, the same man,' he answered. "'Do you know the brute?' "'I do. Go on. I'll tell you something when you have finished.' "'Well, the skipper fired at me. He was the worst of bad characters. They said he'd secured a big fortune after a few years, and that it was locked up in consols in England.' All I know, however, is that he was the most cold-blooded, heartless blackguard I've ever met. Of course, Chinese don't count for much, but I'd be afraid to estimate how many he'd sent to kingdom come during our exciting cruises in Chinese waters. But that's neither here nor there. We quarreled, he and I. Having missed me, he at once decided on another plan of getting rid of me. We were just then hugging a long, broken, and unexplored coastline, therefore he stopped the vessel and ordered the crew to lower a boat and put me ashore knowing too well the fate of a single unarmed man among the barbarous moors. it was a fiendish revenge to maroon me but i was helpless that was the last time i saw bennett nearly ten years ago now the man usher paused for a few moments the effort of such a long narrative having been too much for him well he continued i was put ashore without food or water on a sandy desolate spot the surf was so strong that we narrowly escaped being upset but getting to land at last i discovered the mouth of a river and pushed my way beside it for a good many miles the river i afterwards found was called the tensift and i had landed in south morocco i need not describe all the adventures that happened to me save that i was seized a week after landing and carried as a slave to morocco city where i was sold to a powerful sheik who probably considered that it increased his social status to possess an english slave i was taken across the deserts and over the atlas to a place called Aksabi, and for several years was kindly treated although held in bondage after some time however my master was ordered by the sultan to raise an army against the rift tribes on the mediterranean coast and i was of course enrolled as a man who knew something of war our expedition traveled first to fez where we were reviewed by the sultan himself and then we penetrated into the fertile mountain country held by the revolutionary rifts but disaster after disaster befell us in that unknown country falling into ambushes almost every day, until, with others, I was taken prisoner and passed from hand to hand until I became slave to one of the powerful rift chiefs. All my companions had been massacred in cold blood, but, being a European, my life had been spared, probably because my captors expected they might hold me for ransom. As slave of a tyrannical barbarian, mine was a dog's life. On any day or any hour, I knew not whether my capricious master might not order me to be put to the torture, bastinado, or shot, while the work in the broiling sun under a harsh Negro taskmaster was so hard that it sapped my manhood. The Sheikh Taiba, whose slave I was, defied the Sultan and lived in a mountain stronghold a few miles from the blue Mediterranean. Day after day I could see the open sea stretching away beyond. Uh, how i longed to be free to return to england on one or two occasions i had been sent with other slaves all negroes to obtain stones from the seashore on one occasion at the mouth of a small river that flowed down the valley to the sea opposite the island of Al-Husumas, there had been pointed out to me by one of my hapless companions a decrepit old negro the submerged hull of a ship lying about a quarter of a mile up from the sea and only just covered by the clear, swift-flowing stream. It lay like this, and, taking a pencil and paper, he drew a plan of its position. It was the seahorse, I said quickly. Yes, it had been there for ages, a ship the like of which I had never before seen, but by standing on the projecting rock above I could look down upon it. Many times I visited, for the mystery of it attracted me. Among both Moors and Negroes there was a strange legend that evil spirits were contained within. Hence it was held in superstitious awe. When it rose to the surface there would, it was believed, emerge from it a terrible pestilence that would sweep the whole of the rift tribes from the face of the earth. I, however, had no such fear. Many times I dived off the rock and examined the black old hull, finding that the projecting stern had become wedged beneath the overhanging ledge and that this apparently kept it in its place through the windows i could see that the water had not entered hence it occurred to me that some buoyancy might be left in it for two whole years i held this theory and it was strengthened by the fact that instead of lying heavily on the sandy bottom the bows were raised a foot or two i could see that it was a very ancient vessel which in some remote period had drifted over the bar into the estuary and had stranded there when the river was low then when the winter snows of the atlas had melted the flood had risen rapidly the projecting rock had held down the stern of the old craft and the waters had closed over her the one thought that possessed me was that if that overhanging rock could be removed the hull might float again with this object i waited in patience from the traders at tetuan the rifts frequently purchased explosives which they used in their periodical fights against the forces of the cade mclean and the sultan hence about two years afterwards i found in the possession of sheik taiba some strange-looking substance which although the moors were unaware of its potency i knew to be dynamite i managed to secure some of it and a week later placed it in the great rift in the rock "'and in the middle of the night blew it up. "'The quantity I used must have been much more than necessary, "'for the rock was split and the ledge blown right off, "'fell into the water ten yards away from the vessel, "'while to my great delight the craft came up to the surface, "'the strangest-looking object I had ever seen afloat. "'I swam to it, and having broken out one of the windows, "'crept into the cabin, the current carrying me slowly out to sea.' the explosion had alarmed the rifts who poured down to the spot in hundreds only to see the strange craft which they held in such dread actually floating down the stream the sight of it filled them with terror and they fled attributing the explosion to a supernatural cause my object of course was to escape from slavery and in order not to attract the attention of my enemies the rifts should they board me i threw off my slaves clothing and, finding in the cabin a pair of old Elizabethan breeches and a doublet, I donned them. The door communicating with the other part of the ship was secured so firmly that very soon I realized my position. Days passed. How many, I cannot tell. I only knew that want of food and water, of which I had none, told upon me, as well as the punishment that had been inflicted upon me a month before my escape. For a trifling offence the sheik taiba had ordered my tongue to be cut out a cruel mutilation common among the moors this had not actually been done but so severely was my tongue injured by my inhuman captors that i was now unable to articulate a single word what more can i tell you alone on that strange craft hunger and thirst consumed me my mind wandered i grew worse and eventually went stark mad and oblivious to everything. All I recollect is that I was placed in charge of Ben Harding, the man who acted as Bennett's second mate on the goldfinch, the broken-down gentleman who knew little about the sea and whose previous career included a long term of imprisonment at Brisbane for being implicated in the murder of a mail driver. But you said that you know Black Bennett, He added, with anger flashing in his eyes, He marooned me because he feared that I should tell the truth of poor Jansen's murder when we got to Liverpool. Where is he to be found? End of chapter 30